dive into our uh, sermon series this morning, uh, Hope Rising, where we've been working through Revelation. We, this is the next to last week of Revelation, and I'm really excited about this one. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, if you're looking at one of the Bibles from the back, it's page 1040. Page 1040. All right, so um, this is the deal. Some of you that know a little bit about Revelation have been waiting for Revelation chapter 20 to, to show up because you... You want to know what I believe about a certain topic, and you've just been waiting. Like I got to know if I can be his friend or not, and and you're just ready to pounce. And so I'm going to disappoint you this morning because so the the big topic that that ends up getting dealt with uh, in uh, chapter 20 is the, the the question of the millennium, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in the in in the, a little bit describe a little bit about what that means. But uh, for those of you who know. Your uh, eschatology, your 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 study of the end times. Um, you have maybe have an opinion about that, and you separate yourself from other people who have a differing opinion. And this is what I want to say: what I've tried really hard to do in this book is to focus on the main things, because I think the study of Revelation over the last millennia has been about. Uh, it's been a study in what not to do uh, in terms of making you know uh, ignoring the main things and and diving into controversy that shouldn't even be that controversial. Um, and so uh, it's go- if you have just been so excited about getting to this whole study of what the whole millennium and the thousand years looks like, you're going to be really disappointed this morning. Because I'm going to tell you, what I've done in, in the other chapters that we've talked about is I, in trying to keep the main thing the main thing, um, I've tried to uh, really focus on kind of the star, the main subject of each chapter and, and you might have noticed that any other time some of these more controversial issues have come up, they have not been the star of that chapter. It's because we have, we have focused on the wrong things. We've focused on the wrong things. And so, uh, as, is, as is the case, you know, throughout this um, series, I've, I've said, you know, we, we want to uncrazy this book, make it and, and, and kind of teach it as the uh, word of encouragement that it was meant to be. Because I feel like we've lost that message of encouragement, and, and instead it's just become this big, scary book. And so hopefully, if you've been tracking along with it, you, you understand what I'm talking about, and it's been an encouraging word to you. Uh, if, if this is your first Sunday with us, or, or maybe you're one of your first Sundays with us, uh, all the other sermons from the series are online. You can go check them out there kind of get caught up. Uh, but so we, we find ourselves, the way Revelation is written, it's not written so much as a uh, a linear thought. This is going to happen, this is going to happen, then this, then this, then this. It's not, that's not the way it's really worked out. It kind of works in these cycles. And so we, 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 you know, we find uh, John through this revelation that God gave him telling the story of basically how God is going to ultimately deal with the problem of sin and evil in this world and make all things new again, restore the world back to the way he meant for it to be all along, and a new heaven, a new earth, and new creations, and all of us. And so, so it runs this cycle. So we, we, he tells that story of dealing with the problem of sin and evil, and then he tells it from a different, little bit of a different, maybe more full perspective. He tells it again from a different, little bit more full perspective. It's all the same story, and it keeps cycling back around. And so we're kind of in that last cycle of the, of the book now, and as we're looking at it, the, the, the issues that we're going to be dealing with today primarily aren't about the question of the millennium, although that's, this chapter is the only chapter where that uh, topic shows up. Um, it's really more about the ult- dealing ultimately with the ultimate evil. And so we're talking about the devil. We're talking about uh, hell and stuff like that in this chapter. And, uh, and so we're going to dive into that. Now, 
as, as I've told you in the other parts of this series, I want you to take everything you think you know about this topic and kind of hold it loosely. Hold it loosely. Um, don't be so <coughs> dogmatic because chances are what you know, what you think you know about the devil, about hell, about even all of the end time stuff, um, probably for most of us in this room, probably didn't come from the Bible. It probably came from other sources. In fact, most of the popular notions of Satan and of hell don't come so much from the Bible, but come from uh, uh, other uh, historical documents like Dante's Inferno and things like that. That's where we get a lot of kind of the popular images that you think, you know, the Simpsons version of hell. And, and, uh, and so that, that's, where, that's where a lot of that comes from. And when you actually look at what the Bible says about these two subjects, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's quite a bit different. Now, I'm not saying that there is no devil and there is no hell. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying let's actually look at what the Word says and stick to that instead of you know making this some sort of big uh, you know horror story you know whatever. Uh, so let's dive into it. We're going to kind of get real about these topics and and and, uh, and dive into it. We're going to start with Revelation chapter twenty, verse one. And it starts off like this. <coughs> Let me get a drink of water. <coughs> it says then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. <coughs> Pardon me. Uh, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. We're going to stop right there for just a second. So first of all, let's, there's two words here that come up uh, there where it says, uh, you know, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. So he identifies, he's finally dealing with the ultimate evil in the world, kind of the, 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 the founder of all this evil that's been taking place in the world. He's dealing with the, the devil or Satan. Now, when we, I, I mentioned this several weeks ago, that when we talk about the idea of Satan, when, we, when you read it in your Bibles, it, it typically is a name, capital S, uh, lowercase a-t-a-n, right? Cap, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, the naming of this person. When you actually get into the Greek, that's not the way the Greek treats it at all. Um, in fact, there's always a definite article before the word Satan. So the word Satan literally means enemy. And so the way the original Greek deals with it is it's the enemy, the enemy, the Satan. There, there's always this definite article in front of it, the enemy, the Satan, okay? Uh, and what we have done, uh, I, I think, again, just, just throughout the years, we've turned this person into this very, this very personal figure. We've personified him as a kind of this boogeyman figure, and I think that's a mistake. Now, I'm not saying that Satan doesn't exist. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I think we need to be careful not to attribute to him qualities and power that the Bible doesn't attribute to him. We need to be really, really careful about that, because when you make him this big personal, like, ah, Satan made me do it, and you know, all this kind of stuff, and you're looking for a demon in every bush, and you're, you know, you're just looking, you know, you're constantly looking for all this kind of stuff. That's not the way the Bible deals with it. The Bible is clear that we have a spiritual enemy. We have a spiritual enemy that is, that is out to, you know, um, um, conquer us, that's out to kind of destroy us, to seek and to kill us. We have that spiritual enemy that is doing that. And then here, when he calls him um, the devil, too, the idea, the word devil literally means accuser. Accuser or liar. 
accuser or liar, that the concept in Scripture is that we have this spiritual enemy, and he is about the business of accusing you. Who here, in kind of just thinking through your spiritual walk, thinking about your relationship with God, you know, maybe feeling weak in it or feeling beat up in your, your spiritual relationship with, with the Lord, who here has ever felt in some way kind of accused, like beat down, like somebody's trying to convince you you're not what God has created you to be? Anybody, put them hands up. We, I know we all have done it. You have felt that accused. You have felt that. I've talked to so many people in this church who cannot see themselves the way God sees them. them. They cannot see themselves in this kind of place of victory over their temptations, over their sins. They cannot see themselves as kind of maturing in their faith enough that they would consider themselves a spiritual leader amongst uh, you know, in, within the people of our church. They cannot see themselves in any kind of place of victory. They'll never be more than somebody that's just kind of stumbling through their faith, you know, from failure to failure to failure, constantly letting God down, constantly disappointing God, having this feeling that God is looking at you as if uh, he's so disappointed in you and, 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 and you just feeling completely defeated in that. And I'm telling you, that is your enemy, the accuser, trying to beat you down and make you forget the fact that you are no longer that old person that you used to be, that you are a new creation in Christ. You're a new creation in Christ. That God has, when he saved your soul, when you entered into that faith relationship with him and you made him the Lord and Savior of your life, that what he did was he set aside that old man, that old woman that you used to be, and he helped you embrace something new. He created something brand new in you. And the story of Revelation is how all that newness is going to come to fruition. And we're going to see, we're going to be glorified in Christ and resurrected in Christ just, just as, as Christ uh, did on Resurrection Day. That's going to be all of us. We'll finally get to experience the fullness of what this new creation means to us. Some of us can't stop listening to the voice of the accuser. You can't stop listening to that voice. You're constantly just allowing yourself to be beat down. Some of you have convinced yourself that the voice of the accuser is actually the voice of the Holy Spirit, which is really sad. You've convinced yourself that all this guilt and all this shame that keeps playing in your head and, and rolling, you know, kind of rolling through your mind Somehow that's God's voice to you telling you how disappointed he is in you. And all the time you're just listening to the wrong person. You're listening to the accuser. There's a story I, I, I tell sometimes about a group of people who are traveling on a, you know, a touring trip of the Holy Land. And they're, they're seeing all the spots that you know, all the tourists like to, like to see when they visit the Holy Land. And, and, uh, and they're, they're in a bus kind of going through the countryside. And their tour guide is talking to them. He's pointing out different things as they pass them. And, and as, as, they're, as they're driving through the countryside, they, he, they see this uh, flock of sheep and uh, shepherds out there working with the sheep. And he said, here's the deal. He said, you know, there's, there's a lot of truth in your Bible that over here, the shepherds, uh, they have a very kind of close relationship with the sheep. The sheep literally do know their voice. And so uh, uh, the shepherds here, they never have to poke and prod and try to herd and push the sheep along. All they do is call out to the sheep, and the sheep will follow them wherever they want them to go. They have that kind of relationship. And, uh, and everybody in the bus is like, wow, that's really cool. So they drive down a little bit further, and they see a, a flock of sheep out in the, uh, um, uh, on the field, and there's a couple of people behind them. They're just pushing them and prodding them and just getting angry with them because they're not going where they want them to go. And they all start laughing, and they say, 
I thought you said that the shepherd didn't have to do that. And he, he looked at him and he said, oh, that's not the shepherd, that's the butcher. That's the butcher. And I think for too many of us, we spend so much time listening to what the butcher has to say about us, listening to what our accuser has to say about us, and we're not experiencing, this makes me sadder than anything. How many people that desire to have a relationship with Christ and will not allow themselves to feel the freedom in Christ that Jesus actually died for you to experience? That there is great freedom. Some of you are, are like I was when I was a kid, where I didn't understand what all this freedom talk was about. It looked like everybody that was outside of a relationship with Christ had more freedom than me. And the freedom that you have is freedom from all that guilt and shame. Freedom from the, the, the ultimate effects of what sin can do in our lives. Freedom to experience life and life abundantly. There's great joy and there's great freedom in Jesus Christ. And you have just pushed yourself down in a pressure. You're, you're like that image of those old you know, monks just flogging your, your own back. Just, you, know, you can't imagine that you're worth anything to God and you just have to punish yourself. He's telling you, stop it. Embrace the freedom that you have in Jesus Christ. You have an enemy. You have an enemy. You have an accuser. He's out there. He wants to destroy your faith. But this is the good news, and this is our first point. Our enemy, your accuser, is defeated. He is defeated. He has nothing on you. Who here likes to watch uh, boxing or a good fight or, or whatever? You know? Yeah, good. So, um, yeah, I enjoy a, a good boxing match. And, and you ever watch somebody, you know, they're in the middle of the fight and, and a guy gets knocked down. He hits the canvas, gets back up again, and they go a little bit longer. He gets knocked down. He hits the canvas. He, and it eventually will reach a point in the fight to where you know this guy's hurting. He needs to stay down. You know what I'm talking about? He needs to stay down. But he's got that, he's got just enough energy to get up kind of one last time, and then there's that final finishing blow, and then he's like, he's like Glass Joe. You remember Glass Joe? Who knows Glass Joe? Mike Tyson's fighting punch out? Come on, are you kidding me? That was the bit, he's like, so he's like, you know, that sort of thing. And, and uh, yeah, so he's, he's like that guy, he's just finally out, and he's out cold, and they get out the smelling salts. I mean, he's done, right? Completely finished off that one final blow. And that is Satan. He has been defeated Fight is over, but there's he keeps try he's like fighting. He keeps trying to get up. He wants to get up and do more as much damage as he possibly can. And God's got one final blow to come. And it's not even gonna be close. It's not even gonna be close. He is defeated. And you're allowing the voice of a defeated punk to dictate what you can experience in terms of life in Christ. And that's a shame. You've got to stop doing that to yourself. I've had people ask me, like, how do you distinguish, you know, the voice of God in your life from all the other jumbled mess that's rolling around inside your head? And, and my, my response, this is my experience, your experience might be different, but my response is always that, for me, God's voice, it's the consistent one. It's the consistent one, because God has this path that he wants me to stay on. And the enemy, he doesn't care what I do, as long as it's not that. Just the consistent voice that keeps coming back to me. And all that other mess that rolls around in my head, I've learned to kind of 
this is the thing, the, the longer you can spend time in a relationship with Christ, the, the more you can recognize his voice. Learn to begin to recognize what that voice sounds like, and at least for, for me. You know, stop listening to the wrong voices in your life. Stop your enemy, your accuser. He's defeated. He's defeated. Now, right there in that passage, go back a, a slide there, uh, Dylan, where it talked about uh, the devil and Satan, and they bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit. So this is where the whole concept of the millennium comes from. This is where it shows up, the only place it shows up in Scripture. Volumes and volumes and libraries and libraries have been written about this one place that it shows up in Scripture. Uh, but so, it, so there's a couple of different views, real quickly. I'm not going to focus on this, but just to kind of give you some background for those of you that are new to this conversation. A couple of different views when it comes to the whole thousand years issue. Uh, one view says that um, that when Christ returns, he's going to set up his rule here on earth for a literal thousand years. He'll reign here on earth uh, uh, completely, victoriously. He'll reign 1,000 years here on earth. And then after that 1,000 years, there will be judgment. Now, there's a lot more details in there that, that I'm skipping because I don't have time to talk about it. But 1,000-year reign for, for Christ on earth. And after that, there will be judgment and then eternity and all, all that kind of stuff. Okay? Uh, the, the other more predominant view says that, no, it's not a literal thousand years. It's figured, as has been a lot of the other language in this book. It's a very figured. So the word thousand is used in kind of the same way that when God says, when the Bible says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It doesn't say that because somebody went and got, went one, two, three, four, God owns all those hills. It, it's saying he owns them all. He owns them all. And so it's kind of the, the other view says, no, not a literal thousand years. It's just that God his reign is complete. It's full. It's, it's, it's all of that kind of stuff. And that's what it's talk, talking about. So, ultimately, this does not matter. If you're that person who really, really enjoys to kind of get into timelines and, and, and theories about how it's all going to play out, that's fine. You're welcome to do that. But even Jesus himself said, I don't know the time it's going to happen. Even I don't know the time. So, so, as is my policy, I always go with the guy who raised himself from the dead. That's the way I go. If, if, there's, if there's ever a question, uh, you know, differing opinions, if one of those guys raised himself from the dead, that's the guy you go with. And so if he doesn't know the timeline, then, then it must not be important for me to know the timeline. Now, I'm going give to you, give you my, my personal opinion, and then we'll move on. I, I, I completely see how people get the idea of a literal thousand-year reign. I understand how they come to those conclusions, that sort of thing. I think personally it's a little odd that everything in this book from the beginning until now has been very rich, symbolic language, and then we get to this verse, and suddenly, boom, it's, it's literal, it's a thousand years. I think that's a little odd, and so I tend to lean towards a more symbolic. I get it, we can still be friends if you disagree with that. It's not going to be a deal breaker. We're not going to argue about it or whatever, because ultimately it doesn't matter. Ultimately, the point is Satan is defeated. That's the point. And if you're fixating on anything other than that, you're completely missing the point of this passage. All right? We good? All right, good. So here's the deal. Let's keep moving on. Revelation 20, uh, we're in verse 4 now. It says this. Then I saw thrones. <coughs> I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And also, also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads uh, or their hands. So here it's talking about, John says, not only do I see everything else I've been seeing, now I see all these people who gave their lives for the cause of Christ, I see them there too. They're involved in this whole scenario as well. It says, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. 
This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So there's this, there's this idea that when you're, when you're following Jesus Christ, you uh, die once and you live twice. You get your life here on earth, and then you get one physical death, and then you're ushered into eternal life. You die once and you live twice. If you're not following Christ, you die twice. You die your physical death here, and then you spend eternity in this kind of state of uh, death and punishment and everything else. And, and so that's what's talking here about first rec- resurrection, second death, and that sort of thing. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. <coughs> and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. Somebody's getting thrown right now. Um, that had deceived them was, was getting thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. So here we have this, this, this idea of um, uh, that, that Satan, and we've seen this play out in previous passages of Revelation where Satan kind of gathers all his forces together for one last stand against God. But the way this kind of plays out in popular uh, media, movies, books, things like that, novels, um, it, it is more this idea there's going to be this massive battle, you know, and, and almost like, oh, I wonder if God will finally be victorious or, or maybe, you know, it's, it's, it's all this kind of big question, but this huge, massive battle. But that's not the way the Revelation deals with this. It, the, the, it's that one last punch scenario that is the way Revelation, Revelation deals with it. Where Satan gathers everybody for one last stand against God, and God just simply shows up, and it's over. There's no big fight. There's no big, you know, volley of missiles or anything like that. It's just there, Satan takes one last breath, one last stand, he gets up off the mat one last time, and then boom. It's just over. It's just simply, his presence just does it all. It's just, it's just over. So it's not, it's not this situation of this big, huge final battle that's going to come down. No, there'll be, a, there'll be a, a last stand, but it'll be short-lived. It'll be short-lived. Then I saw, uh, last paragraph there, then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the book, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, Hades means the grave, death and the grave, gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here we go. This is the final judgment, the final dealing with the problem of evil and sin in this world, right? Next week, our last week of the series, we're going to hit chapter 21 and 22, and it's, it's all things being made new. It's heaven. It's all the good stuff. It's going to be great. No question. So what do we do with this issue of hell? You know, some people ask a lot today, is there a literal hell? Is it, you know, what, whatever? So like I said, a lot of our ideas about hell come from sources actually outside the Bible. When you, when you, when you ask people, what do you think hell is going to be like? Pretty, pretty sure they're going to describe a picture that is 
most often something from a source outside the Bible. I don't know exactly what hell's going to look like. You know, a lot of people believe that the idea of the lake of fire and the, and the whole you know, fiery thing, that, that maybe that's more kind of apocalyptic language, but the real point is that there will be this intense separation from the presence of God. Uh, that's really what's going I don't know. I don't know, but this is what I, I do know based on the description of Scripture. It's not where you want to be. It's not. I mean, you can forget those ideas of, yeah, I'm going to hell. Me and my buddies are going to hell. We're going to have drinks together. I mean, that's, that's just foolishness. It's just foolishness. Like, that's not where you want to be. And a lot of times when it comes, this is what I want to focus on the rest of our time together. When we start talking about the ideas of heaven and hell, the, the questions most believers, most people ask is something around the idea of, like, um, why do I have to be there and not go to hell? In other words, what's like the bare minimum I can get by with in this life to kind of sleep into heaven, right? Like, what, what, just tell me. Give me a list. Give me, like, how many times do I got to feed the poor? How, you know, how many songs should I sing? How many times do I got to teach the junior high kids? Uh, you know, like, like how many, how many, you know, which is, you know, can be its own version of hell. And, and so you kind of do that sort of thing. And, and so, like, it's this, it's this, it's like, what, what must I do? What must, it's the question somebody asked Jesus once, what must I do to be saved? Right? What, and it's the wrong question. Because I think a lot of times, for so many of us, we live in this constant state fear around the idea of hell. Who here has ever been afraid around the idea of hell? Experienced any level of fear? You guys are lying. Get your hands up. You know good and well, you have, you have experienced some level of fear, some level of intrepidation about, I don't want to go to hell. I don't, I don't, know, I don't, know, what, you know, I don't know how good of a person I am. I just know I, I don't want to go to hell. I'll do anything you, know, you tell me to do as long as I don't have to go to hell. And, and we have this kind of idea. Like, I want to make sure. And then, and then you know, when you've got a, a friend or a loved one that dies, it's like, you know, did they make it into heaven? And it's all about who made it into heaven and who, who's going to hell. And we have all these kind of questions and these fears that rise up in our mind. And again, it's because we're asking the wrong question. Let me tell you how much time I spend worrying about my eternity. Zero. Zero. And it's not because I'm awesome. It's because I'm not. Like, my life should send me to hell. It pretty much should you laugh, but... Your life should send you to hell too, <laughs> right? Like, like it's not because I'm great. It's not because I've got this so figured out and I'm just coasting on my awesomeness into heaven. That's not what this is. I don't worry about my eternity because I know how great God is. I know how great the, my Lord and Savior is that I've placed my faith in that I walk with daily. I know how great He is have to worry about that. If you're spending your time like, you know, in this hope of like, I hope I make it. I hope I, you, it, it may sound kind of funny, but some of you are thinking this in your head from time to time. Like, well, I don't know. I hope, I, I hope I've been a good, a good enough person to, to make it in. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't have to think that. You don't have to think that at all. This is the point I want to make. Go ahead and put that up, Dylan. Heaven or hell will be no surprise to you. None. You're not going to be on Judgment Day going, what, really? I didn't make it? Like, like no, it's not going to be a <laughs> It's not going to be a surprise to you. 
you know, when we deal with this, uh, this concept of why is there so much evil in the world, and if God is really good, why is there, in Revelation, we, we talked about in previous weeks, Revelation teaches us that God is allowing, as he, as he kind of puts it, he's allowing evil to come to its fullness, to fully ripen. And the idea behind that is this, that when it comes time for the judgment day, not one person on this earth will be surprised about where they're going. There will be no question. There will be no question. You've either been standing with him or you haven't. Or you haven't. There will be no question. There will be no surprise there. So how can we know? Like, how, Jeff, how can you be so confident about where you'll, where you'll end up? The question is not, am I going to heaven or hell? The question is this. And if, answer this one question, and it'll, it'll answer all the other questions. It's this. It's this one right here. Are you following God? That's it. Are you following God? If you're following God, you're fine. I'm I'm following God. I'm I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I have made God the center of my life. And it's not it's not. And we've talked about this before, you know, a while back about the idea of priorities in our life and make sure you know where. There's this concept out there that you've got to make sure God's your number one priority and everything falls underneath that. I think that's, that's a ridiculous idea. It's not about God comes before family. It's God is at the center of my family. God is at the center of my family. And so because of my relationship with him, because of me making him the center of my family, I am able to be a husband and father that I couldn't be without him. It's not about putting God before your career. It's God is at the center of your career. And so you work to the glory of God. It's not about God being the, the before your schoolwork. God is at the center of all of that. He's at the center of my church life. He's at the center of the way I interact with people. He's at, the, he's at the center of everything I do. I'm following him. I'm walking in the spirit to the best of my ability. It doesn't mean I don't sin. I'll sin today. I'll sin tomorrow. I'll probably sin the next day. Jeff can be a jerk sometimes. That's just the truth. Yeah. Yeah, true. But it's not. But here's the thing that we get so screwed up about: the Christian life is not about how much you are or are not sinning. That's not what this is about at all. If that, if if the Christian life was about how much we were or were not sinning, then we're all in trouble. All of us. The Christian life is. Once you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and declared he's the Lord and Savior of our life and you accept his free gifts of salvation, are you following him? Are you following him? John wrote this book called Revelation. He wrote another book that we have in the New Testament called 1 John. And in that book is this beautiful book where he, he spends several chapters saying things like, um, you know, if you, if you uh, Say you walk in the light, but you actually walk in darkness. You're a liar, and the truth is not in you. And he, he makes this, he, several different ways he makes this kind of same point. And at the end of this little book, he, he makes this statement. He says, I wrote all of this so that you can be secure in your salvation. In other words, what John is saying is, you want to you know for sure what, what lies in store for your eternity? You want to know for sure? Are you living it? Are you following Jesus? Because you following Jesus with your life is the evidence that salvation has come to town in your life. It's the evidence of that. You following Jesus does not earn you favor with God. 
when we follow Jesus, it just shows that something has happened. Salvation has come to us. We found in Jesus. That's what I hope when I ask that question. I hope that the vast majority of everybody in this room feels a sense of peace like, okay, okay, I may not be perfect, but yeah, I'm, I'm following Christ. I'm doing the best I can. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to walk in the Spirit. I'm trying to grow closer to Him. I'm, I am following Christ. I hope you find some peace in that. There might be a few of you in the room that go, through the motions, and Jesus really isn't the Lord of my life. I really haven't given him, made him the Lord, the master of my life. I've kind of been ticking off my religious boxes. That's not what God has in store for you when he calls you into a relationship with him. He does, he's not interested in your church attendance. He's not interested in how much you give or how many poor people you feed. He's not interested in any of that. What he's interested in is you. He wants a relationship with you. He didn't save you because some people down the street were hungry. He didn't save you because we have empty seats in church. He saved you because he loves you. He wants a relationship with you. So many of us, we're holding God at bay going, ah, I like the whole salvation thing and getting rid of all this guilt. That's great. But I don't want, I don't want what's the bare minimum I got to do? Just let me know. That's, that's, we're not in some sort of contract with God. This is love we're talking about here. This is love. When someone dies for you, you don't then go to that person and go, okay, thanks for dying for me. What's the bare minimum I got to do to pay this debt back? Have a grilled cheeseburger do it, right? No, no, you don't do that. When someone dies for you, you feel the weight of that, and you go, dude, you and me are tight till the day I die. Whatever you need, I'm there. That's what love looks like. And that's what God calls it. He's not interested in all your religious acts. He just wants you to love him and be in a relationship with him. And if you can say yes to that, you can say, yeah, I genuinely love Jesus, and I'm following him to the best of my ability. And no, I'm not perfect, but I get up every day to the glory of God. And you don't have to worry about your eternity. You don't have to worry about that at all. Let's be those kind of people. Quit worrying about hell. I mean, if you want to live your life worrying about hell, go ahead, I guess. But it's, it's, it's a huge waste of the freedom that God has given you. Follow him. Just follow him. Give your life to him. Give yourself to him. That's what it's about. Amen? Let's pray together. Pray this prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you for saving us from a punishment that we definitely deserve. We thank you for not giving us what we deserve. Um, God, when we treat your salvation lightly, as if it means nothing, 
forgive us. Help the lives. Help us to have you know lives that are lived for you, not because of some sort of sense of fear or guilt or whatever, but instead because um, we've seen how much you love us, and we can't help but love you. Help us to please you. Help us to want to follow you. God, if there's anybody in the room today that that of as they sat here listening to your word and they realized, I'm not following God. I'm just kind of showing up to church. I haven't made my disciples of my own. I'm still following my own thoughts. If that strikes a nerve with any of us, I pray that you would just draw us in and the Holy Spirit would just speak loudly to us. better than us. Thank you so much that you love us in return. So we give ourselves to you one more time. As flawed as we are, as predictably sinful as we are, we give ourselves to you one more time and we just declare you to be the Messiah, our Lord and our Savior. Lead us and guide us in the way that you want us to go. Give you all the glory for it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.